This is Longview Living, the podcast that guides physicians and dentists on a path towards financial security. Welcome to the Longview Living Podcast. My name is Bonnie Catherine Prather, and today we will be discussing financial planning for special needs individuals, their families, and caregivers. We are joined by Garrett East, who is a chartered special needs consultant and certified financial planner with Longview Planning Partners, and Kelly Piacenti, vice president who is responsible for Mass Mutual's special care program. Kelly oversees partnerships between Mass Mutual and the largest special needs nonprofit organizations, including Easter Seals, The Ark, United Cerebral Palsy, Autism Society of America, and National Down Syndrome Congress. Through Kelly and Garrett's conversation, we hope to equip our listeners with the knowledge needed to navigate government benefits, special needs trusts, ABLE accounts, and also share a few other things to consider. So we hope you enjoy today's episode. Here it is. Garrett and Kelly, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Uh, Kelly, I want to start by sharing a statistic, uh, which I think is kind of staggering. Uh, According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, on average, it costs an estimated $233,610 to raise a child uh, to age 17. Okay, so that's just an average number. It doesn't uh, discriminate between New York or Texas or wherever you live or your income or anything. It's just an average of the cost to raise a child. Uh, In comparison, uh, Autism Speaks, an autism advocacy organization, estimates the cost to raise a child with autism or an intellectual disability uh, to be 1.4 to 2.4 million dollars. Obviously that's a huge difference and parents and caregivers, no matter what their income, uh, often wanna know is there, if there is support available to help them with those costs. Um, So the first question I wanted to ask is, where would you point these families to? What are some of the most helpful resources or supports that families can get help from? Well, I would think, Garrett, the first thing that I would do is speak to the family about the person's abilities. So it's very difficult to figure that out early on, but I would speak to them about what a day in the life is, what it's like right now, and identify all of the things that the parents or the caregiver are doing for that individual and how they foresee that in the future. They certainly don't have a crystal ball And if I had one, I'd give it to them all. But I really speak to them about the person, trying to figure out what the person will need in the future so that you can estimate the cost for the individual you're caring for. I think once you start speaking to them about they need daily rides or they need someone to prepare meals or they're going to need someone to make sure that he gets out of bed every day, those are some of the things that will help a family in figuring out what they're going to need in the future. The next step is typically to have a family meeting or have a conversation with other family members. Where is this person going to live? Who are they going to live with? What are they going to do in the future? Up until the age of 21 or 22, everything is pretty much provided by the state in which they live. They're provided education and information and resources. But beyond that, it's really up to the family to start figuring out what the person needs. So I would start by having a conversation with your family and trying to figure out what the future looks like, but it's taking little bites. You can't do it all at once, but it's doing things that make the person happy 
you want to have them in an occupation or have them go to school, or if they're not capable of going to school or holding a job, what will they do all day? So I would start by looking at the person and seeing what the person's needs are first. Yeah. For uh, parents with uh, either young children or old children, um, I know the, or just sometimes it's not children, it's just a, a relative, family member, someone you care about that you're uh, caring for. Um, are there any specific government programs that you would point people to that you would want to make them aware of? Some people aren't aware of the different things they can apply for, the aid that's available. Uh, where would you point them to there? Okay. One of the first conversations I have with people are people that are getting government benefits are not poor. Not necessarily. Some are, but not all are. I think a lot of our families think, you know what? I definitely have enough money. I don't need government benefits. I don't want my child receiving government benefits. My conversation is always to let them know that many of the programs that our children and our adult children qualify after the age of 21, at a minimum, you have to be eligible for government benefits. So I always refer them to Social Security or Social Security Administration to sit down and have the conversation. Prior to the age of 18, it's based upon the family's income. After the age of 18, it's based on the individual's income. So if you're caring for someone with a disability, it is important that you don't have anything in their name over $2,000 unless it's in an ABLE account or a special needs trust, because that is what the government is looking at. They're not just looking at money, they're looking at property, they're looking at a piece of art, they're looking at a piece of jewelry, anything that's over $2,000. So what I would say is, I would definitely refer everybody to see what government programs are out there. There are over 700 waiver programs across the country that people qualify for, and it's not based on income. A lot of them are income, but a lot of them are not. But keep in mind that as the person ages at the age of 18, we're looking at that person. So they could live in a home with their parents. That's a million dollar home. And the parents could have lots of assets. That's not what's going to qualify the individual. What they're going to look at is what that person has in their name, what they own, and what they have. They're not looking at the parents at the age of 18. So I think our families get confused. And because they've been denied, they never want to go to Social Security or they don't want to get government benefits, whereas in some cases, to qualify for a great day program, you have to, at a minimum, qualify for government benefits. doesn't mean you have to take them, but you do have to qualify for them. So I would say government benefits is one thing that they would need to do with Social Security Administration. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And um, you mentioned this about income uh, here in, um, you know, I know we have People who might listen to this from any state, but I'm in Tennessee and we have a program uh, called the Katie Beckett program. It's a waiver program. And it's actually for anyone who doesn't qualify for Medicaid. Uh, so if they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid as a family, well, they can apply for this and it supports them. And so there are there are programs that are actually specifically designed for families that make too much for some of these programs programs, but still need some support, still need some financial help because the expenses are higher. And so, yeah, there's Medicaid uh, waiver programs or just regular Medicaid that can be really beneficial. 
to family. Katie Beckett is available in many states across the country. It's not every state, but it's in quite a few. So when we talk about over 700 waiver programs, you're absolutely correct. Some are means-based, some are not. Some they can get prior to the age of 18, which Katie Beckett would be great for some of our families because they don't qualify for government benefits, but they can qualify for a waiver program. It's a great point for sure. Well, um, one of the things that I've seen working with families uh, is that it is really, really easy to make simple, honest mistakes that can actually be detrimental financially um, when you start doing some planning around um, having a child with um, special needs. And so one common one I've seen, uh, just to give one example, is that parents or grandparents, they may leave an inheritance directly to their child or grandchild without realizing that by receiving that inheritance, that child may now lose access to government benefits like Medicaid or SSI or some of these different benefits. Um, So I kind of have two questions here. My first one is, what are some of the top financial mistakes that you would want to warn parents about or caregivers to avoid? Well, I would say, you know, to your point that it's having that family discussion. When I had, you know, a son with special needs, we had to sit down and actually speak to my parents about it and say, we know you want to leave all the grandchildren the same amount. But when it came to our son, Nicholas, they could not leave him money like every other child. His had to be left in a special needs trust. Didn't mean we didn't want them to include him. They just had to include him in a different way so that he would continue to qualify for government benefits. One of the other things is that our families think at the age of 18, they can't have any money in their name. There is a look back period from the federal government. It used to be three years, but now it's five. So they're looking at that individual at the age of 13 to see what's in their name. So it's having the conversation with those that want to help us or the family members that are considering leaving a legacy to that child. It's that, yes, we would love you to do that, but you have to do it differently. And if you have a special needs trust or you've set something up to leave that person money, then you need to disclose that to those that are interested in leaving them money. As an advisor, and we work with advisors across the country, many of them let our families know that when you're leaving beneficiaries, that they may ask the question, do do any of these individuals have a disability? And the reason that our advisors do that is because they want to warn them that if they were to leave this person money over $2,000, they could potentially lose government benefits over it. So it's really reviewing your beneficiaries and making sure that whoever you want to leave money, if they have a disability, you may want to check first. Yeah. So you mentioned special needs trusts and uh, leaving money to a special needs trust. I think for a lot of people, that's uh, like a foreign language, understanding what a trust is and a special needs trust. Can you talk some about what is a special needs trust? How, How does it work to leave money not to a person, but to a special needs trust? Sure. I mean, there's a couple different types of special needs trust. There's a pool trust, which a lot of nonprofits offer that you can leave money and it goes back to the person while they're alive. But when they pass, it often goes back to the nonprofit. Some do give it back to the family. But what we deal with in the insurance industry a lot are first and third party special needs trusts. A first party trust is a trust that the person with the disability has the money already. So somebody 
left it to them in error. Maybe a grandparent left them money straight out, or there might've been a lawsuit or a settlement and the money is owned by the person with the disability. In that case, they have to set up what's called a first party, a first party special needs trust. We don't see tons of first party special needs trusts. What we typically see are third party special needs trusts, which are set up by the family for the person with a disability. So the difference between the two trusts are really, it's allowing the person to have the best of both worlds. It's allowing them to receive government benefits, but also to be left money. And there's no cap on it. They can be left a large amount of money or left money for the future. So the money in this special needs trust is really for the benefit of the individual with a disability. It's not to make the family's life better. It's to make the person's life better. And anything that you take out of that trust has to be a qualified disability expense. So you could purchase a car with a trust, but you can't purchase a Corvette. You would have to purchase something accessible to drive the person around in. The person could get a new iPad. The person could you know, pay for supports and services that are not covered. Maybe they like to go horseback riding. Maybe they like to take a trip once a year. These are the things that you could use a special needs trust for. You could take the person with a disability on a vacation, but not the entire family. It's for the person with a disability. The main thing to keep in mind is that the difference between a first party trust and third party trust is that a first party trust has a payback provision to the government. So you don't really wanna add money to a first party trust because if the person passes, that money can go back to the government for what they've paid in Medicaid. And that's the only thing to keep in mind. With a third-party trust, they can receive all the benefits in the world. And when the person passes, that money goes back to the family. So there's a big difference between a first party and a third party. You never want to add to a first party unless you're going to spend the money. If there's no money there, the government can't come after anything. But if there's money there and say... You know, they've paid millions over the years for this person, but maybe there's only $20 left in that trust. That's all the government will get, and they walk away. But ideally, a third-party trust is the ideal special needs trust for our families. And that's the one we see the most because families set that up for the individual so they can leave them a legacy or they can include that in their estate plan. Yeah. And when families are wanting to um, either leave behind a, a, a legacy for their child or leave fund a special needs trust or save for the future for that child, then that special needs trust is often one thing they consider. But another thing they sometimes um, are introduced to or think about is an ABLE account. Um, and again, ABLE accounts kind of like special needs trust because it's not a uh, common uh, language, not everybody even is allowed to open an ABLE account. So a lot of people aren't familiar with them. Can you talk some about what an ABLE account is and how that might um, be used for someone? Sure. I mean, an ABLE account is the Achieving Better Life Expectancy. And President Obama had introduced it. The nonprofits really pushed for it. And there are a lot of limitations with ABLE. There are limitations on the amount you can put in per year. There's a limitation on the amount that you can put in overall, but it is a larger amount so that the person can um, save money in an ABLE account. But for me, I look at an ABLE account as a tool that works in conjunction 
with a special needs trust. You don't really want to leave a person with an ABLE account $20,000 because you're going to go over the cap for a given year. So they have a cap amount that you can you can leave in an ABLE account every year. And you can't go over that or you disqualify for government benefits. But we also have a payback provision on ABLE accounts. There are only currently 11 states in the country that don't acknowledge the payback provision. So what happens is you can put money in an ABLE account, which is like a 529 for a person with special needs. It's very, very similar. You can use it for education. You can use it for food and shelter, which you can't use a special needs trust for. But you can take money from a special needs trust and put it into an ABLE for food and shelter. So they work nicely together, but they usually are kept very separately. Many people use um, an ABLE account because they get a monthly check from the government. That can be paid directly to an ABLE account. And a 30-year-old man or a 30-year-old woman doesn't have to go to her parents or a caregiver and say, I want $25 to go out to dinner or I want to take an Uber. It gives them independence. That's why it was really created, to give a person with a disability the independence to not have to run to their parents to say, hey, I want to check. The other thing is a special needs trust can be more restrictive. You can't use it as a checkbook to write your rent check, to write your food check. That's not what it's about. Special needs trust is going to hold a larger amount and you can take money from a special needs trust and put it into ABLE. And ABLE has a lot of debit and credit cards that the person with the disability can utilize or a caregiver can utilize on their behalf. It's not large amounts of money. You can't leave a large amount of money to an ABLE account because you would disqualify the person. You need to keep that in mind. And also the payback provision. Ten states say when the person passes, we're not going to pay back the government for the amount that the person spent since the inception of the ABLE account. So they only look at the payback provision from when the account was set up. So if the person was getting benefits for years, that's not what they're looking at. They're looking at the date that the ABLE account was set up. So those are some of the things that I think an ABLE account is a great tool for our community. It gives people independence. There's an age you know, that they have to be to qualify. I think now they moved it up into the 40s. It was in the 20s when it first started, which was very restrictive that you had to have had the disability prior to a certain age. But the reason that they do things like that is it's not for a person that's aging, that's maybe going to a nursing home, let's put their money in an ABLE account. They also restrict the amount because they don't want it to be that type of savings account. I think ABLE is great. It's another tool in our toolbox to help families, but I don't think it's the end all for our families, to be honest with you. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that's uh, important with these, like you mentioned, that they are similar to the 529 college savings account. And so when you set those up, it's not like you go to a bank or something like that. You actually, each state uh, has a program, just like each state has a uh, 529 college savings account. And you don't have to use necessarily you don't have to use the able account for your own state you could go to one from a different state if you if it fits what you're looking for better and uh, when you're doing research people really need to think about um, what they want the able to accomplish because some states they have their able set up more like an investment account so like a parent maybe wants to save for their uh, child's future it's a great place to save 
Um, and some of them work more like a savings account where you can have like a card that you can swipe and use for different expenses. And so. Well, and a couple uh, I think things for that, and you're right. They can go on the ABLE website and they can look and do a comparison. Maybe you like the one in Tennessee. Maybe you like the one in Ohio. One has a debit card. One has a credit card. But I think it's great because it gives families choices. When it was first established, you were going to have to go to the one in the state in which you reside. But st- some states didn't have ABLE accounts. So I, I think the flexibility was great. The other thing with ABLE is if, you know, we're all about advocating for people to work. In addition to the amount that you can put in in a year, there's another amount that you can put in for wages. So it's, you know, a little less restrictive. We're not saying to people, sit home and, you know, collect a check. If a person with a disability is able to work, they can work and not disqualify for their government benefits. And you can put that money in ABLE as well. But on an annual basis, I mean, you want to be careful how much is in there. And keep in mind that if anything happens, it could go back to the government. What I say is if you're putting it in there, use it, spend it. It's for the person. That's really ideal for it. But ABLE is a great tool. I totally agree. It's just I think that when you have a special needs trust with it, it works really well. Yep, absolutely. Um, Well, last question. Um, One of the tough questions uh, that I've seen a lot of families with older kids wrestle with when their kids turn 18 or whatever the age of majority is in different states is, um, what do I do now that my child's an adult? Um, And they start looking at options like, should I have a power of attorney or a conservatorship or guardianship? Should I be a representative payee? There's these different kind of options for their relationship with their loved one now that that person's an adult. Uh, And it can be a really emotional decision. Uh, There isn't really a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, Can you talk some about what you see as the pros and the cons of some of these different alternatives? I do. I mean, we get the question a lot, Garrett, because we deal with a lot of families around the country that prior to the age of 18, the school systems are speaking to them about transition. One of the things that come in with transition is, you know, do I need guardianship? Do I need a power of attorney? And what I always say to families, though, we don't have a view either way. Um, I use my own personal situation. I know that a lot of families and a lot of nonprofits are not big fans of guardianship because technically it's taken away the person's rights. And that's not really what it's about for us. We want to let people have their independence, make their own decisions. We don't want adults making decisions for maybe a person that's on a spectrum that can absolutely make their own financial and medical decisions. The concern that comes into play with us is often, is, it the, is the person able to make their own medical decisions? We have a lot of people that are dual diagnosed. When they're taking their medication, they're great. But when they're not taking their medication, it creates a lot of problems. So we have families that are concerned about that. And they want to make sure that they can help with those decisions so that if the person goes to an emergency room, that they can help them make those medical decisions. Or in the case of my son, he was not able to speak. So who would advocate on his behalf? If I went to an emergency room at the age of 18 and I didn't have power of attorney or guardianship or any type of paperwork, they don't have to listen to me, even though I'm his mom. I had to apply for guardianship of my own child to continue to help him make those decisions and to have 
access to his medical information. The other thing is financial. We have a lot of people with disabilities that can make their own financial decisions. I have people that have disabilities that um, can absolutely make their own decisions. They don't need anyone to help them. They're holding great jobs. They make a great salary and they don't need somebody stepping in. But my concern is often when I speak with families is it's not about the person hurting themselves. It's people around them, which is unfortunate because our community has to look at that as well, that we do have people that, you know, independently go to work. They go on the bus system, they go on the subway system, but maybe someone sits next to them or takes advantage of them. And if they do, if they take out a credit card in their name, if they, you know, give them money, there's nothing we can do as family members because they have their they have the capacity to make their own decisions. So if they open a credit card or spend that money, there's no way to go back on that. When it comes to power of attorney, I mean that's something that we also get. Kelly, can I just have power of attorney? You can absolutely have power of attorney. You can have whatever you feel is a good fit for your family. The thing with power of attorney is it comes into play when you need it. With guardianship and conservatorship, you have it all the time. You're helping that person make those decisions, or you're basically making those decisions for them. There is no cookie-cutter approach to this. It's up to the family. So I have families that are adamant that they never want to take the person's rights away, and that's fine. And then I have other families that fear that this person could be taken advantage of or the person doesn't have the capacity to make their own decisions. So what I say is, you know, speak to your family, try to make that decision. And if the person with the disability can be included, include them as well and explain to them what happens when someone has a power of attorney over them or someone has guardianship over them. But, you know, that decision is a tough one. But as we always say, that's something that I think the family needs to decide on their own. Yeah. Well, thanks, Kelly. That was great. Thank you. A quick note about today's episode. All opinions expressed by the program participants are solely their current opinions and do not reflect the opinions of their respective parent companies or affiliates or the companies with which the program participants are affiliated. Neither Mass Mutual Investor Services or Mass Mutual nor any of its subsidiaries, employees, or representatives are authorized to give legal or tax advice. Please consult your personal attorney, legal, or tax counsel for advice on specific legal and tax matters. Thank you. That's all for today. Thanks for listening to the Longview Living Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show and benefited from the information we shared. Your time and attention on a regular basis are a gift. As always, you can head over to longviewplan.com to sign up to receive our newsletter, as well as check out all the resources on our page. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.